0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Holy City of Jerusalem at Torah, overlooking the Temple Mount. Um, by the way, everyone, I just wanted to mention that there was... A, who, raise your hand if you're at my Tisha B'av program at night. We did the Tisha B'av program. Anyone was here for that? Okay, one of you? So Two of you? Okay, great. I just, I, I forgot one part of our rant. Uh, you know, it was quite a rant on this situation i mean i kind of had to jump start people tishabov's not once a year tishabov we're always kind of got the Torah, the destruction of the temple is always running in the background of our computer but in asia tors tishabov you got people coming in and never even heard of the holiday and they don't understand why there's no food being served and so somehow somehow we've got to like you know whoever heard of a jewish event without food so we've we've got we've got a. Uh, you know, you get—you can't just jump into mourning like that, you know. You, don't, you just don't have it conceptually. So we have to kind of shock people into it, uh, which I hope I did an okay job. Was it shocking enough? Yeah? I mean, I, I would never do that for a fully observant audience, and I kind of felt bad for the fully observant people who didn't need to be so shocked. But it, I think it worked for everyone else pretty well. Um, I made a bro already, yeah. Um, well. well well, Andrew Schiff's watching. Unbelievable. So, sorry, Raisy Baum. I'm happy you're watching too, whoever you are. <laughs> Raisy Baum. Um, anyway, um, I should, probably shouldn't announce everyone's names because not everyone wants to be known. They're using right, Facebook. Because yeah. Torany Tor Time comes on later, you know, once they put on Torany Time. <laughs> I mean, I'll leave out the Frumer looking names, you know. You know. Oh, Sprinze. So. <laughs> Sprintze Goldberger from New Square. Yeah. From New Square. So, um, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, anyway, but I, there was one thing I wanted to add was that we really should be ashamed of ourselves for being happy about, about uh, Trump moving his embassy to Jerusalem and, uh, and, uh, and we should be embarrassed, mm-hmm. inwardly embarrassed, that we thought it was good... And exciting that they called Jerusalem their, you know, the capital of Israel. That's, that's an, you know, uh, give you an example. Like every American state has a capital. Who do you think, who do you think pronounced the capital of each state? Who said we're going to make this city our capital? Who do you think said that? The state did. And every country in the world has a capital. Every country has a capital. Who do you think, who do you think was in charge of where their capital was in the country? That country. So what in the world is going on that we get excited that a bunch of Gentiles have decided that our capital is Jerusalem. We don't, no country in the world's expecting other countries to be announcing where its capital is. I mean, that's just a weird thought. But only Jews would be the ones excited about such a thing because somehow we're, we, like, apologize for our existence. And so... Um, I'm coming from a totally different place of, of uh, Jewish pride than we're used to, and that's, like, to the core, where, like, we're not... We don't have rear-view mirrors. We don't have side-view mirrors. And can you imagine driving a car without rear-view mirrors or side-view mirrors? Well, I'll tell you how you do that. You put the pedal in the middle. Anyone who's into fast driving, you know, real racers in this room, which, you know, I imagine most of you ladies are not, but... There's a couple men in this room who probably know what it is to drive fast. You don't use your mirrors when you're going twice the speed of everybody. It's not relevant who's next to you. There's no one in your blind spot, okay? Nobody. There may be a cop car with sirens going in your <laughs> blind spot eventually, but, but otherwise, there's no one in your blind spot. You're going twice as fast as everybody, and that is the way you lead a country if you have any pride. You don't have mirrors on the side of your country. You're not looking through the rearview mirror to see whether people are excited about your moves. You make your moves based on what's going to be best for your people, for your citizens, and, and you, you are... Everything is unilateral, at least concerning everyone outside your country. It may not be unilateral in. If you've got a democracy, it's not unilateral inside your country. But everything is unilateral when it comes to the rest of the world. Anyway, my rant's over. That's not our subject today. Our subject today is actually... Um, our subject today is actually mental health, and um, it's a really complicated subject, and I'd love it if someone's a quick Googler, if we got any quick Googlers. Anyone online right now with uh, any great Googlers in the room? Someone like Googling when a rabbi's speaking, just to make sure he's not talking about a bunch of malarkey? Are you a good Googler for this kind of thing? Yeah, you... I also have a degree in psych. I, I no Excellent. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> What's your name? Honey <laughs> Honey, so you'll keep me honest. Okay? So I'm also a mental health professional, so it'll, it'll work great between the two of us. Okay? Um, I've been in the field already now for, oh gosh, um, I, I finished my training in 1999 without a lot of post-training. And I've been in the field now since then, which is, I don't even know how many years that is right now. 19 years? 19 years in the field. So, so you'll probably have more of the scholastic facts. Anyway, but that's what we're going to discuss. And the reason we're going to be discussing it is because if one more person calls me with OCD, you know, with the obsessive compulsive disorder, if one more person calls me with that issue, I'm going to freak. And then, and then thinking somehow I'm going to fix this. You know, like, like I can help a lot of people with a lot of things, but that's just, that's just going to be, uh, you know, not exactly something I'm going to be getting involved in. And the amount of work that would be necessary to get... By the way, we're talking about medicated people here. And they, these people are on medication. Many of them are on multiple medications, meaning we've got them on mood stabilizers as well as um, uh, just regular, what would you call it, OCD medication that causes them to stop thinking so darn fast. What would you call that? Anti-anxiety. Okay, thank you. Anti-anxiety with, with mood stabilizer in this last person I had and he was taking a third thing that keep him awake because apparently these were knocking him out of it. So he had a third thing and that was, you know, not coffee, I'll tell you that. And and it all coincided with him getting married, which was kind of interesting fact, a little strange. Didn't sound so good about his wife, really. And uh, but it had nothing to do with his wife. In the end I found out what it was about. It was he wanted her to think she had the best goods. So she he decided that from the time they got married that she should think that he's amazing, that that he would just kinda not tell her how things are going. I Meaning he'd always pretend everything's great. Is there a woman in this room who wants their husband to always pretend everything's great even though he's going through all kinds of stuff? Is there anyone here who would want that? And uh, I'm not showing you all the ladies in the room right now, whoever's watching this, but no one raised their hand. Nobody. <laughs> Which taught me an amazing thing because I told the guy, I said, you've got to start sharing your life with your wife. Share your life with your wife. You're not even married. Share your life with your wife. So we wrote. So I said, but before you do, please write me a list of everything you'll be sharing. <laughs> Just to be on the safe side. So he sent me a list, and I looked at his list, and I was like, eggs, X, eggs, X, do not share that. He's like, I don't really like her food. <laughs> I'm like, we won't be sharing that. You know, and he's also like, uh, he's like, a lot of the times, I'm really not that interested in being intimate. And I'm like... Don't share that. <laughs> so at which point I, we learned a new distinction, and that was the distinction between um, between uh, uh, sharing pain and stuff you're going through and uh, causing pain. <laughs> I Meaning, you understand, there's a difference between sharing pain and causing pain. So everything that was sharing where he was at was Got a check, and everything that was going to just cause her, you know, total pain was an X. And we don't we don't share things that cause pain with our spouse. We share the things where we're in pain, and share that. Another thing, just in case, since we're on the subject, and I'm the most heavy digressor on the earth. Um, since we're on the subject, another thing is men have a misconception about crying. Um, well, today's men, which I'm, I'm, that's a compliment that I'm even calling them men, but today's men in quotes. They think crying's like really good, you know, like no matter what. And the answer is, it is really not good no matter what. There's a time to cry and there's a time not to cry. So I'd like to distinguish that just for men. And uh, let's get this down, men and women. You'll teach your husband this. The, um, the time you cry is when you're having deep feelings. That's cool. Deep feelings is fine. But when you're feeling like a wounded little boy in preschool, you know, like you're a little boy. So your wife doesn't see you as a little boy, she sees you in a little tutu, okay? And suddenly she starts feeling really insecure, really insecure. And it's not a tactic, it's not good, it's not normal. If, and if a guy really is got a, if he really needs someone to cry on his shoulders because he's just feeling so wounded right now, he should have a best friend that he cries on. Or pay someone 200 bucks, man pay someone, people pay me 200 bucks all the time to cry, you know, and, and, and by the way, how do you think I got to 200 bucks? Cause it was always 100 bucks. It was a hundred dollars to spend an hour with me and cry. So how to get to 200 bucks. I noticed I kept, can- I noticed I kept canceling. I was canceling over and over again. And like, I would just like the day before I just be like, you know, I'm a little busy tomorrow. So uh, I got to cancel this week over and over again. And of course the next, what was I really doing? I was mountain biking. You know is that a, meaning, I got to the point in my life where where hundred bucks was not worth it, so what happened was I moved it up to hundred fifty bucks, and I noticed I was still canceling. But then I finally moved it to two hundred dollars, and I stopped counsel, canceling, so I realized that that I'm willing to hear whatever you got to say for two hundred bucks, otherwise save it. <laughs> And now I fully, I used, to be, I used to think it was reprehensible. I mean, I charged 100 bucks for a good decade and a half, probably. And I thought it was reprehensible, the amounts people are charging for, for therapy. <laughs> well, I finally found out why. You know? <laughs> How many people are you going to listen to? You know, I'm saying a lot of this facetiously, by the way. I'm saying it a bit facetiously, and, uh, but, uh, it's, uh, but it's half true, is, is that <sighs> let's put it like this. For you to get your feelings out in 50 minutes is impossible. It's just impossible. Because the, what the human mind knows, what's your human mind know? Your human mind knows you just put down 200 bucks to, sh- to cry. But your heart doesn't understand that. Your heart only starts loosening up at around 40 minutes. And then at the fourth, and then 10 minutes later, when you just started getting going, the therapist is like, well, that's it for today. (laughs) And you're just like, what? And then you come back a week later. So the one thing I learned from that that is that if I'm going to go talk to somebody and cry, I always book a double session. I don't always need it, but I book double. Because I know my heart might need a little more time before you know 50 minutes that's a joke and uh and the seminars I run I I gave it all up by the way most of it up for seminars and the seminars I run are the shortest sessions are four hours it's but it's group work it's group work but but you start to realize when you start really processing deeply that you're like if this session wasn't 4 hours, I would never have gotten this gunk out of me. Like there's no way. You can't scrape the bottom of your barrel in 50 minutes. It takes several hours. And I've no and, and then I noticed with Hasidic women I I planned the real meltdown session, which is midway in the seminar for a, it's a 6 hour. 6 it has to be 6 hours. There's no other way because we we're going we're going in, man. We're going all, all the way in there. We're gonna like, I mean, I, while they're convulsing, you know, because it gets insane. I mean, you almost want to call Hatzalah, like the the ambulance, while they're convulsing in there, and and it literally sounds like gas chambers, like screaming, and. But I can literally like see Hitler and like I can see Hitler while we're doing it because because this is the transgenerational pain of people who two generations ago could never share what they went through in a way who raised children in a world where you do not share your pain. And now I'm with the grandkids who are now in their thirties, forties, fifties who were raised. You don't share your pain on the third generation. And believe me, I work with the, I work with the kids who are in 18 to 25 too or the fourth generation, same exact issue. So, so I, I see when I'm, Meet someone like once in a while I'll put my hand around a Hasidic man, you know, eighteen year old, like kinda put my arm around him a little bit just to give him a little comfort, and he jumps. He jumps from my touch. And I just I I'm instantly transported back to the Holocaust. And here we've got a family that touches also off limits. You don't touch. And so so there was another another shocker. You know, back to the, you see those of us who were raised more secularly we thought the Holocaust ended far from it far from it yeah. the toll is staggering now it's interesting just while I'm on that subject is a, a Hasidic couple once came up to me in a at one of these big events, you know, the hotel type, you know, fancy Shabbatons, and, and, uh, this couple comes up to me, you know, Williamsburg couple, and, and, uh, you know, he's in a stremo and, you know, white stockings and stuff, and she's in, uh, she's in, um, you know, like, she, she just looks kind of like a China doll, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's like you almost want to flick it to see if it, if it, you know, is porcelain, mm-hmm. and, and anyway, the couple came up for a little help. And and they... Um, and so I finally looked at the guy. and I'm like, how long are you married? And he says to me, married? We're not married. And I'm like, who is this lady? <laughs> and there's no one else around, you know. It's just him and his wife. I mean, who is this lady? She says, oh, she? Oh, she's married to my shvigir. That's a mother-in-law in Yiddish. She's married to my mother-in-law. I'm like... What? <laughs> like this is getting really weird. You married to your mother-in-law. Sorry, I'm just like so shocked by your comparison to the Holocaust. I don't know if this is like an answering question session. Like I can do I'm just like everyone's dressed so nice today that I'm flipping the camera. Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. No, yesterday, yesterday there was no way to flip the camera because touring <laughs> in time would just be like, don't flip the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I'm overwhelmed by your comparison between, like you said, you saw Hitler in the room. Are you comparing like the emotional trauma that we've been through, or that we all go through that we don't discuss to like the atrocities of the Holocaust? For me, it's just like such a intense. Is nobody else like it? Yeah. I'm like, oh, I see. Quiet. Oh, okay, no problem. Yeah, no, no, you're just misunderstanding something. Throw yeah, okay. that up. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Thank God you brought it up. My goodness. Yeah, no, I wasn't comparing anything. That was your... You were comparing. Okay. Meaning you thought I was. Yes. I wasn't. Zero comparison. Okay. Nothing. Ephes. Okay. Yeah. So, Anyone else did that? Anyone else thought I was comparing things? Really? Well, you were, like you were saying, you about the thing is, I'm used to... I usually anything. only teach these topics to Hasidim. So they're right with me, and they know I'm not comparing anything. And so I guess you guys probably aren't from that background and thought I was making comparisons. It seems like you're yeah. comparing and saying those things were so bad that they could not be shared, but these things in our lives, these are things we can't, like that's, the, they are compared in that bad. sense, right? Oh, what was that? Yeah, so, say it again. The really bad things of the Holocaust were so bad that you couldn't share those feelings. These feelings are ones you can share, so it's, contra- it's a contrasting. Ah, uh, uh. Yeah, I wasn't. No, I was. not saying that even. Not even a little. <laughs> Public speaking is so dangerous, you know. Cause I, here, I know what I mean, but you know, there's 30 people who are trying to figure out what I mean. You know. Yeah. No, I wasn't saying that. Not even. Not even anywhere near there. Like totally different soccer field. Okay. So, Oh yeah, so thank you for reeling thank you for reeling the fish back in. Okay, so anyway, so the husband said he is married she's married to her mother in law. So what happened there is that there's a deep uh, psychological move that people make. It's a very dangerous move, but it's a helpful move at times, which is called disassociation. Disassociation it, it's a it's a real mother load issue when you're dealing with mental health because there are people who are disassociated and didn't reassociate. Meaning if you're on an LL flight and they're suddenly like postponing it later and later as a takeoff, but you're already sitting with your seatbelt on and now the air conditioner broke and you're like you're like turning into hot dogs, you know, and and you're and you're already you're already sardined in your coach seat and 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 you're gonna be on a twelve hour flight and it's already been an hour and they just told you it's gonna be another hour. So what happens is you disassociate, which is fine. You know, you just kind of remove yourself from yourself till the AC comes back on and the plane starts flying. And if you're over six feet in coach, you're going to be dissociating no matter what's going on in that flight. Because you just got to get through it. And so, and and there's other times people disassociate, women in childbirth perhaps. Um, Obviously, there would be dissociation in crisis, meaning like a terror attack. People often suffer disassociation. Did you say bombings? Trauma, Trauma, any type of trauma. There'll be disassociation, which is fine. It's it's a protection device. It's important. But what happens, if there's trauma over time, like there was in the Holocaust, disassociation can just become complete, like complete disassociation. And so once you have disassociation, well, what does that mean, disassociation? It means that my being has been sent over there, and I'm just left with my doing. I'm left with my doing. You see, I can still do. I may not be able to be anymore because my being was pushed aside, but my doing I can do. And so a whole generation of survivors went to Brooklyn and rebuilt Judaism to show those Nazi bastards. And boy, did they do an amazing job. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I marvel every time I'm leading things in Brooklyn and Muncie, Williamsburg, you know, any of these areas, Lakewood, wherever I go with this big amount of post-Holocaust communities, I'm just blown away by what they built. It's just incredible. Incredible. Sad that it had to be built outside of Israel because it could have just been built in Israel and we wouldn't be dealing with this mad system we got here, but that was part of my Tisha rant. But they rebuilt, at least externally, at least physically, and so, what happened was, though, the dissociation was there. And because of that, there was not a lot of I in that generation. This is not an I generation. Now, is that functional or dysfunctional to no longer have your I intact? Dysfunctional. That is dysfunctional. Now, what do human beings do whenever they have something dysfunctional? What do we do? Do we say, uh, I'm, I'm feeling really dysfunctional right now? Is that what we do? Do we go to our good friends and say, I have a dysfunction"? Do we get married and say, listen, you know, we're gonna, it's going to be great, we're going to build a beautiful home together, but let me just let you know about my dysfunctions. You know. <laughs> we don't do that! And, you know, and you'd be lucky if someone even... Normally, someone goes to a therapist, even when people come to me, they're not like, let me, let me explain my dysfunction. No, it takes us like a session or two just to get to the dysfunction. So what happens with human beings is whenever they have a dysfunction, they create a worldview, a worldview around it, that makes it all kind of make sense, that it all kind of makes sense. Like, have you ever met anyone who had extreme social anxiety to the point where they're, like, not going out so much anymore? What's that called? Agoraphobia? Yeah? You ever met anyone like that? So, (laughs) well, you're doing great now. So you're here. So the, um, anyway, but what will happen if you meet the person, you start talking to them, they'll have created a whole world explaining it all. That's what humans do. We somehow have to explain our dysfunction. Like, let's say you eat junk food. I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, why in the world would you put that in your body? But yet you will. And so if I ask you, like, what are you doing putting that in your body? Or asking a smoker, like, why are you putting your mouth up to an exhaust pipe? You know, they, they'll have, we create something around it. Human beings love narratives. We always need a narrative around our dysfunction. And I promise you, everyone in the room, including myself, have dysfunction. None of us is functioning so perfectly that we can actually claim that we're totally functional. We're not. But the reason we think we're mostly functional is because we created a narrative around our dysfunction. All of us do that. And one of the beauties of personal growth is where you finally get honest with yourself. And you stop with your narratives. You just stop creating narratives around dysfunction. And once you stop creating narratives around dysfunction, you have a chance. You know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like someone who has cancer, God forbid. And but they don't know it. You know, that's dangerous. That's dangerous because that stuff spreads. But if they know it, they can isolate it. They can the, the doctors can now deal with it, and they can they, they can save the guy. But when it comes to creating narratives around dysfunction. Mm, chances are you're going to spray that narrative all over your children. You're probably just going to push that narrative into the next generation. And that's the way we, we generally work is we'll literally explain to our little kids why things just are this way with a, you know, a whole explanation when it's not that way. It's just that for us, we've created a narrative around that to be that way. And it could be we got our narrative from our parents. But there comes a point where you've got to stop doing that. Like, for example, uh, I know homes from California where you you just feel it and you share it. You feel it, you share it. You feel it, you share it. Like, it's great. Everything just comes out. Like, I mean, the dinner table is like, whoa. You know, because they'll literally go around the dinner table and every kid gets to share, like, what they're really going through. You know, it's heavy to go to dinner in that place. You know, sometimes I'm in California like, yeah, would you like to come over for dinner, Rabbi? And I'm like. No, thank you. You know, your house is a little too intense for me, man. I just want to eat. You know, give me some food. I got a lecture tonight. I don't want to sit there and listen to your kids, you know. But that's the way it is over there. Now, one of their kids married a New Yorker. (laughs) They were in for a shock. You know, because it starts with, like, kind of lack of eye contact for the first day. The second day, it's, like, lack of uh, communication. Third day, it's, like, It's just, you know, and somewhere between the third and fourth day, it's like a maelstrom of, of, uh, of like, you know, she just unleashes on him. And he doesn't know what hit him. He's like, because whenever he feels something, he just shares it. You know, you just instant, you know, like, uh, is there a toy or something where you push it and it pops out? (laughs) You know, I'm sure... (laughs) <laughs> Jack in the box. But it's like when you feel the dent, you like, I mean, think about someone with a brand new Volkswagen bus. Like, did I say brand new? Sorry, a vintage Volkswagen bus. You got a vintage, perfect condition Volkswagen bus. And then you're at a shopping center. You pull it up. It's like a dreamboat. You know, it's like amazing old school Volkswagen bus in perfect condition. And what happens, the guy parked next to you opens his door and tends to your Volkswagen bus. Now, it's morning right now. It's 9 a.m., you go buy whatever you're going to buy. You get back in your car. Where's your next stop? Where's your next stop? The body shop. You go to the body shop. You go straight to the. And body shop for men, by the way, is not a, uh, you know, women's uh, soap store or something. I don't know what. Isn't there a place called the body shop or something? Oh, bath and body works. Whatever. So anyway, you go to the body shop and you have the dent dealt with. You know, you pull out the dent because it's your brand new dream machine, and you're not going to leave a dent in it and that's the way toddlers are toddlers they feel, they feel it they express it like boom like comes right out whereas adults we just like you know because the first dent you get on your Volkswagen bus you deal with the second one you deal with the third one you with. Know, the fourth one you're like eh, at the end of the month so at the end of the month you get all three dealt with after about a year you know meaning four more dents five dents six dents well you know at the end of the year so at the end of the year, before Pesach, when you go for your big Pesach cleaning, you went to the body shop, and you had them all pulled out. Next year, dent, 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 dent. And after a while, you're like, you know, well, if I ever sell it, I'll have all those dents pulled out. And that's the way we all walk around. We're all just wounded, you know, and, and covered in dents. And, you know, we, we just never pull it out, which is why I run seminars, to have full meltdowns, because we just got to, we're going, we're going to have to get it all out. And, uh, uh, by the way, um, just a shameless plug, just cause I so rarely run them in Jerusalem for women. I run them often for men, but not for women. There is one for women on August 12th, which is Rosh Chodesh. Elo is a women's seminar, six nights straight, six to 10 PM. It's called thepossibleyou.org. I have not run one in about eight months for women here in Jerusalem. There will be one for women in, and men in November in Muncie, New York, but, uh, but it's better to do it if you're single here, because um, in Muncie, there just are not a lot of single people mm. in there. Everyone's your mother's age, okay? Mm-hmm. So the, uh, there are a few single people, and it's quite beautiful. The, the mothering that takes place in there for them. I mean, they get nurtured like nobody's business. But, um, but it's, uh, Jerusalem's probably better if you're single. And, and again, it's Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh, Elul, August 12th. When sec, she was first? Yeah. So in this case, what happened to the Wait. Thank you so much. What does that mean that she's married to... So we're talking about disassociation. Now, um, two things you have to know about that world. One is that if you don't have an I, you don't have an I love you. Okay. You need an I for an I love you. I, I without... You know, you ever have someone just say love you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like, that's nice. So she's, so she's her mother's, We're not there yet. I'm on something else, but I'm getting there. Is that you have to have an eye to have an I love you, and that's one of the most important things in relationships. Is that is that the more you know yourself, the more you have an eye, the more your expression of I love you means something. You have to have an eye to have an I love you. You have to develop your eye, yourself. You can't love someone until you've developed yourself internally. And how do you develop yourself? Well, most importantly, is get rid of the pain. I mean, get it out already. And um, I recently had a guy engaged to a Gentile, visiting Israel with the Gentile, and that's you know that's pretty intense because you know Jews tend to keep it in the tribe, and he was going to be not keeping in the tribe. And I happen to have been tipped off that her family was planning on converting him as soon as the wedding was over. So so it was a pretty heavy situation. Anyway, um, so this family that was from New York City, uh, I sat down with a guy and I asked him, what do you love about her? And he listed 10 very amazing things about why he loves her. And when he finished all 10, I wrote down just the subject of each one. And when he finished all 10, so I wrote down afterwards i wrote down the words the word me or myself before every word does that make sense to you meaning he said she makes him feel good she she loves him she cooks for him she's she supports him she motivates him you know he did not mention her at all she wasn't in there and i asked the question why do you love her and it was all about him everything was about him and, and, uh, now who was he really in love with? He's not no, he hates himself. And she's the bandaid. Meaning he's got a 50 stinch wound about himself. His 50 uh, stitch wound needs emergency care, not band-aids. She's a butterfly band-aid that he was going to somehow apply in marriage. But he doesn't know who he is. And he certainly is not happy with who he is. And somehow she's representing who he could be, but it's not about her at all. Now, any of you wanna be, be married to someone as their Band-Aid? And how many of you sitting in this room right now are, are, have been searching for their Band-Aid? Mm-hmm. But that means there's no I in the I love you. That means there's no I, there's just, there's just usury. And I'll go even further. The word usury means to use people. <laughs> I'll go even further to say that until you have an eye, until you have an eye, all your relationships are usury. Everything, even your parents. You'll notice you call this parent when things are like that. You call that parent when things are like this. You call this sibling when things are like that. You call that one when things are like this. You get hired, you call that friend. You get fired, you call that friend. You, you got every relationship you have is, is basically using people as a band-aid to feel somehow better about yourself. But none of that ever works. That's just more narrative around dysfunction. In this case, it's relationship narratives. And so when you actually go to work inside and like pull out all your dents and you look yourself in the mirror and squarely in the eyes can say, I love you, I really love you. With the really part. Not just that I t- a tacit, I love you, and you got out quick. No, you looked in the mirror and you looked yourself squarely in the eyes and you said, I love you, I really love you. When you can do that, you can get married. Because next thing you'll, you'll use is your kids. You'll use your kids because every woman is, I'll give you an example women, every woman is desperately jealous of her mother's attention to her father. And, you know, the the only good thing that can happen to a teenage girl is when her parents have a fight. Because now she can go in and, like, you know, you know, bandage him a little bit. Like, now she's in because she stormed off, you know. And, of course, you know, they're not going to fight forever. So, again, she's just going to come in and elbow you right out of the way because the mother always wins. And that's why girls dream of their wedding day when they're finally going to get their own man. Except men have a whole different issue, and that is that... Men are conquerors and if he's wearing, if you're wearing his wedding band, he's, you're, you can consider yourself conquered and he's going to move on for the next kill, which God willing will not be another woman, but it will be business and it'll be money and it'll be a lease of a nicer car. And it's going to be, you know, all kinds of things that men want to go achieve, but you're not one of them because you've already acquiesced. You're, you know, you've already met his club. Now, the so then in the end you're um, lonely because <laughs> he's out there trying to like save the world or whatever he's doing. You know, he's out there. So like your dream to finally be get your man is like been completely thwarted because men aren't like that. Men don't want to just stare into your eyes by a fireplace. <laughs> men are off to for their next kill. And what happens is you got one last alternative. What's the, what's the answer? Children. Children. Now there's a good victim. Now there's a good victim. I mean, they're helpless. What can they do? They, they just can't help but love you. And so it's just mama, mama, mama all day long mama. And as soon as she's through saying mama, you got the next kid saying mama, mama, mama. And then it just keeps going. And It just keeps going like that. Mama. And the interesting phenomenon is that if you're, if you lost your eye at some point, meaning if stuff went wrong enough, you'll notice that you can't deal with children. At, at that age, meaning let's say so, the trauma hit at six, you know, where you finally found out you were like completely forgotten by your parents who were supposed to come get you, and they just didn't, you know, and there you were, like, you know, all the kids were picked up, and you're just sitting there, and, and until the administrator sees you outside the school and is like, like, what are you doing here? And you're like, mama, you know, and, and, and then, uh, but, but amazingly, parents notice that that's the age that they can no longer connect with their children, and then they suddenly have this deep desire to have another child. Now, of course, they're generally having other children, but if they have a six-year-old already and not one younger, like once that kid turns the age where they can no longer really relate, because we can only relate as long as our parents or our hearts related to them. It's not that they stop relating, but when we get those life shocks, those traumas as children growing up, those are, that's the edge, that's the border of how much we can relate to our own children. That's another reason why it's so important to heal your life. You have to heal your life because wherever your life got unhealed in your childhood is exactly where you will not be able to deal with your kids. That age is where you will no longer be able to deal with your kids and you will yearn for the next mama, the next child to say mama one sec, I'm still developing this. Sorry, I'm not taking any questions now. I'll take them at the end. So then it's more mama, it's more mama. And so what happens if you don't have an eye, all of what I just shared for the last 10 minutes is what you wind up with. And I'm talking about a healthy eye. If you don't have that eye, so then you're going to be dealing with everything I just shared. Now, where you get your eye in the end is from your children. Except... What do our children need from us more than anything? To give or to take? Which one? What do they need from us? That we should give them or we should be taking from them? Which one? They No, they are desperate for us to give. But when you're getting your self-image from that child, you are taking. Give mama a hug. You're going to take care of mama. You're going to give mama nachas. You're going to be there for Mama. <laughs> So after a while, you have no identity but Mama. So you're married to Mama. And that's why this Hasidic man said, we're not married, she's married to my mother-in-law. The first thing you do is you move to Muncie. You leave Williamsburg, and you go to Muncie, and you wean Mama, and you wean the daughter, who's saying Mama. And you learn what's called healthy independence. And you heal, and you got a lot of healing there. A lot of healing necessary in that place. Now I can take some questions. Yeah, Ellie Mayor First question is, regarding healing these deep-rooted things, yeah. would acupuncture help at all? <laughs> Amazing question. Yes. Next. I mean, it certainly, it will help at all. <laughs> It will help at all. You said you asked the question perfectly. If you told me would acupuncture fix it, the answer is an unequivocal no. But will it help at all? It will help a ton. I've had someone touching my pinky toes. You know, I have reflexology, but like but like the top guy. The top guy. I mean, this is a top dollar, top guy. And he was like, just cry it out of your little toes, just cry it out. And he's holding my little toes. It's killing, like, I don't know what happened to my little toes. It was, it was like he had pins on his finger. He had nothing on his fingers. He, it was after 45 minutes of work till he had somehow moved all my emotion to my little toe. And then he's like, I don't know what he was doing to my little toes, but boy, was it one of the most painful thing. And he's like, just cry it out of your little toe. And I was, I was bawling. I'm like, it's killing me. But then next thing I know, I was just crying it all out. I don't even know what I was crying out because it was a foot massage i mean there was no content but i can tell you this i felt great for about three weeks after that i mean i felt amazing emotionally you know because i cried something out it was some like maybe it was from such maybe pre-verbal stuff because there was no content but boy was i crying it out so i sent my wife to him she cried out of her little toes which was amazing (laughs) yeah i had a feeling what's your other question That this guy like who says like she does all these amazing things for me, right? Yeah. And you were saying it's not that he worships himself, it's that he hates himself and that he's using her as a Mm band-aid. So, to be honest, I actually question that. It make a lot of sense that you could have a lot of guys who necessarily like have a good self image of themselves, but they still want more, like, I don't know, most people. And he's like, oh, she does additional, like, stuff for me. So it's still not wholesome. He's still doing it for himself. He doesn't hate himself. Love your question. So the answer here is yes. Um, Yes, there is nothing wrong with augmentation of oneself. To augment yourself is, you know, it's fine. It's fine. And I think it's human. I think it's quite human. Um, I think we all want to feel, for example, you show up to an event with your spouse and your spouse looks good, I think I think that's considered normal to enjoy that. No, I'm just saying, I'm just using one example, but one example of being augmented by your spouse. Uh, I wasn't saying it was a good thing. I was saying that you can still have a case where the guy is doing stuff for the wrong reason. Um, like, he's only getting married to this woman just because she's satisfying his desires, and if not, you he can care less about her. But it's not. No, you're talking about... You can still have that without him hating. Oh. Uh-huh. Like let's say someone just greedy. He doesn't hate himself, he just wants more okay, okay, now I get what you're saying. Sorry. So in that case, um in that case I would I would argue that he's he's uh if if someone ever told me that, let's say I was meeting with someone one on one, he told me that that scenario. So I would spend the next half hour just poking holes in his water balloon and watching it all leak out. Meaning, meaning, he's just going to ooze when I'm done with him. He's just <laughs> fooling himself. That is a guy who's fooling himself. And you saying he really does have little self Yeah. And he does himself? Yeah, but he's created a narrative that works for him that makes him feel like he doesn't. They, see, let me explain why I'm saying this, Ellie Moshe. There's a, there, Ellie Mayor. I mean, there's a great, again, there's a great, um, there's a great, principle that will ring true if maybe even all the time and that is that the more you got yourself worked out the more you love everybody not just your spouse everybody my wife sometimes says to me when i say i love you to my when i say i love you to my wife sometimes she looks at me and she's like how many people have you said that to today (laughs) and i'm like i'm probably about 30 and she's like can you say something else for a change, you know, because just because like, and by the way, I've got tons more to work out. Believe me, I've got like, I have not scraped the bottom of my barrel and I'm constantly learning more and more, you know, issues inside of me. And thank God I've got myself set up perfectly to have them exposed all the time. And it's, it's humbling, but real, you know, and but I notice that the more I scrape off, meaning the more places I heal, the more loving I become. I just become more and more loving all the time, and it's just a direct result. And so you you just become more and more loving as you go. So you're saying every every time that someone is, is in a relationship because of himself, it's really because they hate themselves. Yeah, I mean those are strong words, but to some level or another, there's 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 a there's a painful, let's put it nicer, there's a painful place, and that painful place is not being addressed. Instead, it's being somehow, that dent is being filled in with putty with perhaps someone's initials on it. Okay, Okay. but let's, let's leave it at that, because that's not, wait, wait, we still, we still have to get to our class. This, you missed the title. The title of our class was mental health, and we, we've been going way too in-depth Um, And I'd like to just share the following, and this is where I wanted the stats, was how many people in society are OCD today? Meaning if you take 100 random people or 1,000 random people, what percentage of those random people are dealing with OCD? And let me just explain something about OCD. Everybody's OCD. What is OCD? I'm not discussing right now so much the compulsive element. I'm discussing more obsessive thinking. Everybody is obsessive thinking. To some extent, we all do that. We all obsess about some things. I mean, sorry, we all obsessively think, and we also some of us obsessively think about certain things. And when we're in low moods, we can obsessively think about a lot of things. And we um, like. And I'll give you an example of a thing I obsess about. Don't put your feet near my pillow, okay? And please don't touch my towel. My wife. Um, honey, can you check if the front door is locked? I'm like, I, yeah, it's locked. She's like, no, but can you just go check? I'm like, you cannot lock a locked door. Okay, I just came back from locking it. It's locked. She's like, please. So, anyway, we we all have our things, you know, that we do this with, and some things we do more. And again, when we're in low moods, we really do it. So, what I'd like to share with you on OCD is that everybody's got it. And it's uh, on a continuum, so there's people who have it very low, and then you get the people who, where's, where would you say, can someone tell me where middle is? I'm standing too close, tell me when to stop. Yeah. Let's try that again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. I asked the wrong person, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> <too much>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't got a measuring tape here. So anyway, let's say this is uh, so this is this is already one here. And this is a hundred. There's no one who's zero. There's just no one who's zero. All of us overthink sometimes. And so what I what we're gonna see is that there's one to twenty and then there's oops. There's one to show we, someone show me where twenty is? <laughs> okay, now you got the 1 to 20s, and the, you're right, it would be a little further, but the 1 to 20, the 1 to 20 people have, you know, their obsessive thing, I'm probably like a 2 or a 3, because I'm like very non-obsessive thinker, but the, uh, but again, don't touch my pillow or my towel, and the, and the, so 1 to 20 people obsessively think about certain things at certain times, um, but they're considered completely and totally normal, and their well-being is high.
1: Then you got
0: this other population that's between 20 and 50, and this is not the population, what we're talking about is levels of OCD. O. C. D. It's for the people watching it. (laughs) It's backwards on my phone. Okay. So (laughs) the problem is this is going to be maybe messed up, but hopefully not. Anyway, so, but I'm not changing the numbers. Um, Anyway, you got 30 to 50, 20 to 50 people. They, I blew it. Sorry. The 30 to 50 people, the 1 to 30 people, let's call, are fine. Sometimes I say 1 to 20, I'm going to say 1 to 30, but the 30 to 50 people suffer, but we do not medicate them, because it's pretty heavy duty to be medicating people. So we generally, you know, we generally, a responsible psychiatrist is not going to medicate a 30 to 50 person, even though they're suffering. They're really suffering. But you don't medicate those people, you give them tools, and like, help train them and get them to slow down their thinking, meditation, various different things to do. 50 to 100, we medicate, okay? Those people, we medicate. Now, I've had a lot of OCD people coming to me almost on a daily basis, um, asking for help. And here's another, here's my question. Question one, how much of the population, if you took 1,000 people, how many people out of a 1,000 Westerners, I don't know, people in New York, LA, Chicago, or whatever, how many of them are suffering from, let's just say, 30 to 100's the suffering? Because they're not, the, 1 to 30's aren't necessarily suffering. But the 30 to 100, how many, how many would you say are suffering? What? Oh, come on. That's way too high. Out of, oh, 200 out of a 1,000? Let's just say what percentage. Two percent are suffering OCD. No, it's a rare. It's not. You're not talking about obsessive thinking. It's like kind of different than OCD. Right. So OCD as a diagnosis would be much like obsessive thinking would be much higher. Ah, so how do we, how do we, find that out? Is there a term for it? This is all people... Uh, what we're discussing is people discuss de- dealing with anxiety. Yeah. That is what we're talking about. Yeah. Meaning, touch my pillow, I'm getting anxious. Noticeably. Maybe the anxiety is a better term. Yeah, yeah, see, people suffering anxiety. I mean, what is anxiety? What the, what's the definition? You ever thought about it? So anxiety is... Uh, it's kind of a double whammy. One is that that things aren't working out the way I want them to. So I'm getting anxious about it. And the other is having the future hit you now. Okay, can you guys handle now? Everyone okay right now? Do you want me to change temperatures? Like, everyone okay now? Now we're cool? I practiced this when I I recently had to um, give blood and when they poked me. So I said, okay, here comes a now that I'm not excited about, but can I deal with it? I said, yeah, any now I can handle. Nows. Life as a succession of nows. I'm okay with now. And I let them poke me. And I tell the nurse, I'm like, I'm okay with now. So go ahead and poke me. Because if now I got to get poked, I can deal with that. And most time I'm not getting poked, so I can always deal with now. Okay, right? Most time you're not. Are anyone getting poked right now? Okay, so now you can handle? So look at this. My elbow right here is now. This is now. And this is the future. What is anxiety? This is the other definition. First level of anxiety is things aren't working the way you want. Like for example, you miss a bus and get anxious, but that's in the now. But here's a different definition of anxiety: is here's all the future stuff I got to deal with. Raise your hands if you got some stuff you got to deal with over the next few months. Everybody, okay? <laughs> if you're married or you have kids, it's going up even more. But okay, those are all the things you. Can... Now those are coming, but with anxiety is is when I when this starts becoming like a drawbridge. And everything starts sliding into now. Can you deal with all that stuff now? Can you deal with all your life now? You cannot. And that's anxiety in a nutshell. Is having the future land in now. Now, the only way that could ever happen to you is if you're allowing your mind to project into the future. Meaning, lack of mental discipline. Lack of mental discipline is the cause of anxiety. Now, not the first cause. Missing a buzz, even with mental discipline, can be very frustrating. But the second type of anxiety, which is allowing the future to land into your now, even though it still is far from arriving, that's a lack of mental discipline. Now, one sec, one sec. We don't have any stats on that, do we? It says 18%, but that would be the people, like, diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. people come to me yeah. right. so okay so whatever the amount of people is it's large if it's 18% it's, it's close to one-fifth and that's diagnosed with anxiety disorder here's my question if we went off to the Amazon and climbed through the jungles and found our way to one of those little lost civilizations when in fact we're actually the lost civilization they're, they're actually doing probably much better than we are but how much percentage do you think they're dealing with anxiety over there? High or low? Extremely low. I mean, imagine it exists if it's a mental disorder, anxiety, which I think most medical people think it is. I imagine it exists there, but boy, is it going to be low. It's going to be really low. And it might be higher in drought years, and it might be higher if they've got cannibals living nearby, or, but in general it will be low, especially if there aren't cannibals living So what's the difference between them and us? How come they're, they're going to be low anxiety? By the way, there's great studies on this, so I've, I've got to read some of them. One of them, which is such an amazing read, and you must read this, is called The Continuum Concept. Um, ladies especially. is all about raising children with continuity and, and the, as opposed to abrupt shifts in their uh, connection which, like a nursery, for example, is an abrupt shift from nine months in the womb to under an incubator light, you know, in a a nursery without contact with the mother for the next day or two, besides nursing. But um, but She even posits, you want to hear something crazy? The author of this book posits that our accordion relationships where it's like, I love you, I love you, and then you do something stupid or say something wrong, and then I hate you, I hate you. The accordion related I can't live without you. I can't live without you. I love you, I love you. Do something stupid. I hate you, I hate you. And like this on off thing that goes on with relationships, she believes is the on off of of motherhood for infants. There's a lack of continu- continuity, meaning it's called the con- this book's called The Continuum Concept. Well, what she was able to prove by her own journeys into the Amazon was that the jungles out there, the baby never leaves the mommy. She's always got it tied on. So it's not like it nurses and then goes into a padded cell called a carriage or a, or a uh, uh, what do you call the beds of babies? Crib. Classic man. You know Crib. So instead of like, it's either nursing or you put it in its crib so you can go back to your email. It's always with you. So if you're going to pick coconuts, guess who's coming to? And if you're going down river to get water, guess who's coming to? Yeah, the baby's always there. There's no break in the continuity of the, of the intimacy. From nine months to the air of the world, we don't break that up. And so they don't have this on-off thing. They've studied these people. They don't have the on-off relationships. And they also don't have the anxiety. Now, my, I'm just going to share with you guys my latest prognosis for people with suffering anxiety, which I told you, I've had someone almost every day coming with it. And, uh, and last week, it's been kind of a bombardment of people with anxiety. The... Um, my prognosis if that's the right word for it or what to do if I we put it like that is go back to basics like one guy in New York has been calling me every day I mean this guy's really suffering but I think he's also OCD by the way because he's he called me at one in the morning at one point you know it's a little weird and yeah of course well it certainly can cause a lot and um anyway so what did I decide for him I'm sending him to a jungle person, mm-hmm. meaning I'm not sending him to the jungle. I I know a guy who's kind of joined this kind of jungle cult situation, nothing cult. I mean, there's no religion involved, but, but he's like part of this kind of communal living jungle type place in New York. And... And so I, so I called the guy. I said, listen, I need you to take on somebody. He'll pay you. And, and people who live in jungle cults could use money. They, they're happy to get paid something for their all their knowledge they've developed. So I called him and um, said, you know, I got someone in New York. You know, he's a married man with kids. He's just suffering terrible anxiety. He needs to absolutely and completely restructure life. That means sleep. That means diet. That means meditation. That means That means just... Cr- a mental, um, discipline, like he's got to redo it because think about it. Your body renews. And I forget what they said. At one point I heard every seven years, every cell in your body's new. Like the body you have right now didn't exist seven years ago because all your cells have reproduced. Well, what where are they getting their stuff from? The answer is they're getting it from your food and your drink. Well, what are you eating and what are you drinking? I suggest water. And I suggest the food be as close to its original form as possible. Back to anxiety, they they check stool samples. That's the excrement of deer that live near housing developments. And what happens is deer need a certain amount of space. Every animal has an area of space it needs to stay normal. And the way we judge how the animal's doing is by, by checking its stools. Well, the stools of deer that have encroaching housing developments—even though you'd have to take a helicopter ride quite high to see how it's somehow being encroached, because you wouldn't see it with the naked eye—but people who are involved in the the environmentalists, whose job is to check out ratio of of civilized land versus wilderness, one of the ways they deal with lobbying for wild wild lands is this using this the. the difference in the stool samples of a deer or the coyotes or whatever the animals are there because they change you can sense anxiety which we call today IBS or irritable bowel syndrome which is just another element another element irritable bowel syndrome means another way of saying irritable bowel syndrome is deer in headlights out of your element but if what's going to be regenerating your body Is going to be what you're eating well you better eat well and if you're dealing and and a lot of that stuff is the chemicals in your brain your brain cells and all that all that you know the incredible chemistry up there which is like a laboratory of chemicals well what's recreating all those cells if not what you're eating and so you better be darn careful that you're you know eating food that's as close to its way it was created and that, beca- and then there's the whole discussion Why? of. We alter food all the time, cooking meat or baking bread. Cooking meat is not a major alteration. No. It's good enough to kill all the bacteria. It's perfect. I, I actually wouldn't mind some right now. Actually. <laughs> I'm just saying that they, they say as a general rule, I mean, I'm not going to get into a whole diet thing right now. So that's why I was saying the general rule is keep things as close to original as possible. For example, um, grains. If you need to ingest grains, which people generally do with baked goods. So just make sure it hasn't been too pro- so processed that there's not a lot of nutrients left in it. You understand? That's what I'm saying. If you need something sweeter, well, well get some dates or something. Rather than white sugar. You know, if you got a sweet tooth, I pop a date. And it's messing with the chemicals in your brain. I'll tell you, two days ago, at night, I felt myself getting angry. I rarely get angry. And I didn't express the anger, but I felt the anger. And then yesterday, I felt it again in the morning. And because something, you know, whatever, the cash machine wasn't giving cash. And, like, someone was waiting for cash. And I said, okay, I'll be right back. I just got to go to the cash machine. But the cash machine, I guess, was out of money. I don't know. It wouldn't work. And I and there was no other cash machine around, so it was like it was crazy, it was a t- total bollogon. But I felt myself, I felt like my blood kind of heating up, and that's very rare for me. And so I was had to take note because I have zero tolerance for negative emotion. If I have negative emotion, I do not create a story around that. I look inside. I say, What's going on here? And immediately, I, the very first thing I said was, This is probably relating to the fast. Because just last night, meaning not last night, but the night before, when I felt the anger in the next morning, well, I went 24 hours without any food and without any drink, which means the chemicals in my brain have been altered. And now I've eaten, I ate extremely healthy and extremely carefully, what I, I re, kind of restarted my digestion with was well thought out, which my wife's, you know, thinking out when she's serving food. And so then I was just kind of curious, Wonder what I wonder what it was. But the first thing I'm going to think about is diet. Now, if someone's calling me about anxiety, I want to know what he's been eating. I want to know what she just ate. And what, what's their general diet? Because that's what's creating things. So this guy in New York, you know what he said to me? He said, yeah, but what about the parents' generation? Our parents' generation aren't suffering the anxiety we are. And I said, yeah, well, guess who they're born of? They're literally the flesh of their parents, and their parents... We're living, were born 60 years prior and eating much wholer food. Gesundheit. You couldn't even get sugar drinks when those kids were growing up. And they're born of those people. But we're born of people who were raised in the junk food era. We are born... I was raised in the junk food era and I'm your parents' age. I'm your parents' age. So I was born in the junk food era. And so my children... You could say we're born of junk food, except I, I left that world, you know, well before my kids were born. And hopefully I was able to regenerate enough goodness in my body before, the, and my wife's also a very healthy eater. Because we went back to the jungle, so to speak. We're back to those original principles. Now I'd like to say one thing about diet and Torah. I want to say one thing about diet and Torah. And that is that a lot of people think that it's enough just to keep Torah. They think that's enough truth. That's enough truth for now. Thank you. You know, I'll just keep Torah. That should do it. And how many times do we see people who keep Torah who are overweight, often smoking, eating things that are not healthy for them, not sleeping right hours, and but thinking, you know, like uh, I mean, that's enough truth for me. You know, like I'm already keeping all of Torah. I mean, that's pretty heavy. That's a tall order. You want me to worry about my diet? But the way we look at it around here, especially in my community and stuff, the way we look at it is you're not into Torah, you're into truth. We're not into Torah. We're not into mitzvahs. We're not into God. We're not into that, that's all that religious stuff. That's not what we're about. We're into truth. And every person was built with a truth ometer, a truth ometer. And my truth meter on whether there's a God or not rang true about the God thing. So, okay, God's in. And then my truth meter said, hmm, it'd be a little hard to fake the Torah as man-written. Like, that would have been hard. I, it seems like it's God-written. Okay, I'm in. And my truth meter regarding prayer is, well, now that I know it's really a spiritual world, and I have this spiritual device called speech, which is like, good luck understanding how we are able to form speech. So using speech to co- talk to the being, and that makes this place. When it's, There's no logic to how we are able to produce speech. Do you realize the mathematics I'm sending across the room right now? And believe me, I'm not good at math. But somehow this, these words are coming out of me right now, like with thousands of mathematical equations hitting your eardrums. Because this is not English, this is math. It's all vibration. And somehow I'm able to create that. Well, well gee... That wondrous thing in this creation, which is being created by a wondrous being, well, I'm going to put those two together and start praying, using prayer to connect. That hits my truth-o-meter, Is to use prayer and lots of it, and uh, and then uh, and then. Well, I got a body, and my body. You know, I look around in the natural world. I never saw, I never saw a squirrel eating beastly. Well, maybe I have once or twice, but, but <laughs> squirrels eat acorns, you know, and bears eat. Salmon, you know, like bears don't eat Cheetos. I mean, they will. <laughs> I've seen it too. You know, I have, I've been skiing in places, you know, where we find the bear inside the dumpster, you know, like eating Cheetos. But, but the uh, bears don't eat Cheetos, you know. And and fish don't eat, you know. They don't drink cola, you know. They the and we're also made of part animal, and so let's treat the animal right. That hits my truthometer. That hits my truthometer. Truthometer. You don't have to make Judaism even a religion. just let the Christians be a religion. You know, Christianity is a religion. Islam's a religion. Mormons a religion. Let them be religious. We're into truth. And when things become true for you, so you just do it. That's just part of reality. It's funny. I live in a full Yiddish-speaking shtetl, but if you come in my house, you would you could swear you're in like you're in like Hayd Ashbury, San Francisco, or like Greenwich Village, or it seems like a it's like a hippie commune inside there. And here are my Yiddish-speaking kids who are like totally put together, like. You know, like they don't, you know—they got the whole, they got it down in the, you know, the Hasidic Yiddish world for sure. I mean, they're totally—they got it. You know, their parents, on the other hand, are a bit embarrassing, but but my kids got it wired. But you come into my house, into my dining room, the table's been pushed to the corner, yoga mats everywhere, and it's a Pilates class. You know, between all my daughters, and my oldest daughter is an instructor, is leading Pilates. You know, I come back from shachris, and there's my wife doing yoga every day. There's a yoga session. I've already done yoga, before, you know, before shachris, and and the, and the and then my my five year olds got the blender out. You know, one of those ninja insane blenders. You know, and like it, it'll liquefy. You know, a car battery. And it's it's you know, and she's just like, wait till y'all taste this one. You know, and of course you can barely get it down because it's mostly vegetables, and you're just like, you know, like but it's super healthy, raw shake, you know? And I'm like, please just throw one more apple in there, like anything to make this thing sweeter. And, and but it's my five-year-olds making, making, you know, and, and this is what they eat, this is how we live. And, we're, and there's meditation going on, and, and, and I, have a, I have a whole meditation area, which I'm not going into details what's in there, but it's quite spiritual in there. And the the kids join me in there sometimes and sit there for 45 minutes straight, just breathing and meditating. It's got, I'll just tell you a little, it's got like names of God. everywhere, So you get to like meditate on the names of God because all the names of God are verbs and you can actually follow the the movement in the names of God, which I can do that for you in class, which I've been meaning to do for you, is to take you through those uh, movements of the names of God. I I often do that in here, but lately I've been like, I did it once for you guys. Anyway, we're going to end with that. Um, shalom, everybody. Let's, let's, let's live the truth. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.